Salutations and welcome to Longevity Now, the place for everything you want to know about life extension from around the world. As you know, we usually interview people from the inside, people who are actively working on therapies to combat aging. Sometimes it is good to go outside of the field and look in. Founder of Skeptic Magazine, Dr. Michael Shermer has been keeping his eye on longevity science for a long time and has recently written a book called Heavens on Earth, The Scientific Search for the Afterlife, Immortality, and Utopia. In order to get the ball rolling, I first wanted to get his overview of the field. How do you view the current state of rejuvenation science? Uh, well, I'm, I'm skeptical of most of the rejuvenation science in terms of its grand goals of living forever or, you know, completely eradicating cancer or Alzheimer's. If we can do those things, uh, that'll be great. And, you know, there are a lot of people working on it. But the fact is we have a long ways to go because these are complex systems and they're very hard problems. There is no such thing as cancer. There's a hundred different types of cancers. So any one thing you come up with is going to maybe perhaps affect one type of cancer, like childhood leukemia, for example. We've made some progress on But that has nothing to do with prostate cancer, which is a completely different thing, or breast cancer, which is yet again a different thing. So the same problem with the rejuvenation. You know, cells are very complex. There's no one magic bullet that's going to do it. Sure. So you would say you're pretty optimistic, though, because uh, there is a lot more resources. There are a lot more resources going into the field. You, I would think that we would start to get more incremental progress. Yes, for sure. The fact that there's a lot of startup companies and some of the dot-com billionaires are backing some of these startup companies to solve specific problems. There, I think, is where the action is. You know, instead of saying to, to telling people we're going to find the problem so that you can live a thousand years, forget that. We're going to try to solve Alzheimer's. Okay, good. Now, and and that alone, I was just uh, meeting with some doctors last night, having dinner. You know, that working on this problem, and we're still not very close to figuring out the Alzheimer's thing. We have a long ways to go. These are really difficult problems. Even when you know exactly, it's the plaques and tangles, these uh, amyloid beta, whatever they're called, that get in there and cause the plaques and tangles around your neurons. You know, that that's simple compared to some of these other uh, problems that people talk about. And still, we, we don't know what's going on. So, you know, it's we got to keep plugging away. Yeah, people, uh, you mentioned it already, uh, the magic bullet. People think that there's one thing they can take that's going to cure them. Why, again, do you think that people fall so quickly for the magic bullet against aging? Short-term memories, they only remember the recent fads and forget all the fads that came before uh, that was going to you know, do the trick, and then they faded. What happened to those? those back in my time, in the 1980s, there was you know, a bunch, and then the 90s, and the 2000s. So this is the problem, is that they're, they're just fads. They change too quickly, and there is no magic bullet. And people forget about it. And they forget about it. Yeah. Uh, and about the ethics of rejuvenation, uh, you know, it's unlikely that any new treatment is going to be shared equally across the world. Do you think it's still a worthy effort if wealthy or well-connected people get it first? Oh, totally, because that's how it works in a in a free market society that uh, the rich will initially have the, say, fastest, coolest cars like Tesla's. But eventually, everyone's going to have an electric car. You've seen it this way. Or computers. You know, only the wealthy could afford the big mainframe computers in the 1980s. Now everyone has a computer in their pocket. It's far more powerful than those mainframes from the 1980s. And they're super cheap. 
Um, and, and that's how markets uh, and te technological systems evolve when there's a marketplace for it. So if you allow the rich to buy the rejuvenation, whatever, that's fine. That's good. I'm, I'm, I'm for it because eventually every, if everyone wants it, the prices will go down. In the past, one could make the argument that you have been one of the most harsh critics of the field of cryonics. What do you think about the progress recently in the field? Essentially, you're uh, putting the brakes on for a hundred years, a thousand years, or whatever, by halting all molecular activity. Okay, the problem here is, again, technologically speaking, uh, is enormous. That um, even with the new, um, uh, you know, d um, uh, sorry, the new vitrification system, and, and, and you, you pump the antifreeze in there as fast as you can. Uh, the problem we have at the moment is, in, in, in a way, it's a legal one that you, you have to be dead before you can do this. You know, the state treats it as a form of burial. Uh, and so to, to say off yourself early and then, you know, and then have your body frozen or whatever, that, that would actually be illegal at the moment. It's sort of a form of uh, euthanasia, I guess, or, or physician-assisted suicide or whatever. So that, but those are legal problems. The, you know, the idea of like freezing an embryo and bringing it back using it for IVF is one thing that works, but freezing a brain, you know, it's just so much larger than an embryo. Okay. So I was part of a program to, uh, to win the, um, this prize for, uh, freezing a rabbit's brain. Yeah. And then, the brain preservation prize. Wasn't that it? Yeah. I think it's, I think it's a really cool program. Uh, just technologically, technically speaking, scientifically speaking, it's super cool. And there it is. You know, I, I saw myself, the, you know, the rabbit, there he is, he's alive, that he's dead. They slice his brain, they, they freeze his brain, they defrost his brain, they slice it up and the synaptic connections are still in place. Okay. There's a couple issues there. First of all, they still got to ratchet it up to say pigs and then, uh, and then primates and eventually humans. But the problem there is, um, that, Copying your connectome and putting it into a computer, I contend, is not you. It is a copy of you. So this gets us to the problem of identity. Who are you? And because let's say instead of using that system, we freeze your brain, slice it up, copy every synaptic connection and put it in a computer, even if this could be done, which it can't be yet, not even close. Um, we, don't even, we don't have all the computer power in the world. It's not enough to hold even one brain. Okay, but, but let's say Moore's Law and 100 years from now, whatever we can do. It. Let's say instead of freezing the brain and slicing it up and co copying all the synaptic connections. We had a sophisticated fMRI machine and scanned your brain while you're alive. We slide you into the scanner, copy every uh, synaptic connection, put it into a computer and turn it on. Well, what happens when you turn it on? Assuming this would work, you're still standing there. Your point of view self, as it's called, the, the you inside your head looking out at the world through your eyes. You're still there. You're just standing there. And so we turn on the computer, even if the computer, in, the voice inside the computer says, here I am, uh, you're going to be standing there going, no, I'm right here. You're just a copy. I'm with you on that one, too. I, 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 I fail to understand some of the people who say, you know, a copy of you is still you. It's your identity. I, I just you. don't may, know it, that line of thinking. I just can't. It may, grab think, it's, it may think it's you. Uh, even if it thinks it's you, it's still not you. It, it's you're still in, you know when you're dead you're still in the grave and the copy is up there with Jesus or whatever religious people have the same problem you know again I, I address this in the book I have a whole chapter on the, the theistic versions of immortality you know so and I've asked asked them well what happens when you're resurrected and you're up there with Jesus and God and the whole thing you know am I physically there well some of them say yes you know that in some Christian sects the physical body is resurrected oh yeah what age 
<laughs> you know, they all 30, because Jesus was 30, you know, when he was crucified, or maybe 33, depending on when you count. Anyway, so, um, but that's not me, you know, like, when I was 30, I, I was very different than, now I'm 63. So what happened to all the memories of the last 33 years? I don't want to miss those. That's part of me also. Okay, well, copy all your memories now, you know, at the point of your death. Yeah, but the, say say I did this tomorrow. The memories I have now of when I was 30 are very different from the memories of when I was 30 10 years ago and 20 years ago and 30 years ago. The memories themselves change over time. Not only do I edit them, but the significance of what happened changes over time. This is why people should not be writing their memoirs in their 20s. You have no idea what you did, you know, the job you took, the person you married, career choices you made, whatever, are going to affect you for the rest of your life. You don't know, right, until, it's, until you look back toward the mm -hmm. end. Okay, so this is, the, this is the problem, again, of identity. Who are you? There is no you. It's a fluid, constantly changing, always edited process. Even your genes get turned on and off over time, depending on the environment you're in, and the food you're eating, and all the things that happen to you, stressors and so on, your memories, your whole connectome. There's no fixed set of memories that represents you. Um, that you know, It's a fluid set. It's always changing. So, sure. uh, so there, there's yet another problem with the um, you know, we're going to replicate you and put you into a virtual reality. That's yet another thing I write about is, you know, we're going to eventually create a virtual reality in which we're all, we all get to live forever. Is Frank Tipler's fascinating character. He is smart guy, but essentially to replicate, really replicate you. Cause you're not just a, a person living in isolation. You're in a social group. You have family, friends, a society, an economy, a political system you live in. And so on. all of that would have to be replicated. At some point you'd have to replicate the entire universe. The entire universe is, it's what we're talking about here. So we already have it. You're living it now. So don't miss out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the book is heavens on earth. And the scientific search for afterlife, immortality, and utopia, besides what can be garnered from the title and what we discussed here, uh, what else might listeners find interesting, little nuggets that are in the book? Uh, well, um, I do have a couple chapters on utopias, the attempts to create heavens on earth through social engineering and why those always fail. And again, it's like the, you know, the magic bullet. Uh, problem you talked about with if we can just take the one supplement that'll do it there is none it, it's orders of magnitude like that more difficult for creating a society and what's the ideal society there is none <laughs> you right. know there, there's too much creation in human nature and human desires and wants and needs that the only the ideal system is a system that is not an ideal system where there can't be an ideal system it's, it's a system similar to kind of what we have and where we're going that it's it's malleable you can change it uh you can change the laws and 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 have elections and keep tweaking the system tweaking it and tweaking it and tweaking it it's an experiment this is why i equate democracies with, with science it's like an, a social experiment you know in, in the united states we have 50 different states so we have 50 different Constitution, state constitutions with different tax systems, different gun control laws, different abortion laws, and well, so it's slightly slightly different. We have federal laws, of course, sure. and over states laws. But anyway, you get the idea that we yeah. that we're you're allowed to tweak those things. Now, there's some things we don't want to tweak too much. So we have a bill of rights, for example, and say, okay, to change one of those, boy, that's going to take a lot. Well, the reason for that is because. Uh, mobs are too quick to act on emotions and just change things on the on the whim. So we don't want to allow that uh, on a big scale. So we that's why we make you know two thirds of the states have to agree before we change a a um, constitutional amendment. 
and so on. It happens, but not not often. Okay, so something like that is what I'm talking about. Sure. That utopias try to do it too fast. They think there's just one thing we could do if we could get rid of all the Jews or the blacks, or if we could just do you know gen, you know social engineering, genetic engineering. If we just have the right race, the right religion, you know whatever. And those are always going to fail. Uh, anyway, so I, I do address that. Dr. Michael Shermer, thank you so much for joining us on the Longevity Now podcast. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Speaking with Dr. Shermer reminded me that one can be skeptical yet still optimistic about the prospects for progress in life extension. Also, watch out for those magic bullets. Biology is pretty complex. Until next time, I'm Justin Lowe.